right. It's good to see everybody. If I can have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 9. I will warn you, not a very uplifting section of Scripture. Well, let me put it this way. It's, for us, we're going to be so uplifted, we're going to be in heaven when this stuff happens on the earth. So, uh, as somebody has said, we'll have a balcony seat. But uh, so far, we have seen Jesus open the seven-sealed scroll. Now, that was chapter 6, where we saw him open each of the six seals. And as he did, certain judgments were unleashed upon those on the earth. Chapter 7 was a pause. And then chapter 8, Jesus opened the last seal of the seven, and that unleashed the seven trumpet judgments, which we began to look at in chapter 8. Now, each of the first four trumpet judgments affect the physical universe in some way, as we already saw, vegetation, oceans and seas, then fresh water, and finally, the fourth trumpet struck the heavens where the sun, moon, and stars were diminished by one-third. Uh, but with the sounding of the fifth trumpet, the focus will shift from the physical to the spiritual realm. The fifth and sixth trumpet judgments will unleash upon the inhabitants of the earth demonic judgments so horrific it's hard for us to comprehend what it will be like for the people living on the earth at that time. Remember that during this period of time, the restrainer has been removed. Now, the restrainer is a title for the Holy Spirit. It comes out of 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6. But not just the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God will be here during the tribulation period. As we have said, it will be an incredible time of evangelism. Yes, uh, many Christians, many tribulation saints will be martyred for their faith. That's true. But some have said, and I kind of agree with them, that there's a good chance more people will get saved in this last seven-year period than maybe have gotten saved throughout the entire church age. That's how much the Holy Spirit is going to be moving. Okay, so he will be here because nobody could say without the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. Right. So what is this restrainer? Well, it's really the Holy Spirit working in the church. Remember, Jesus said to us that we were the salt of the earth. Right. And as we studied Matthew five, we learned that salt back then was a preservative. They didn't have refrigeration. So they would take salt and they would heavily they would rub it into their meat uh, and it would act as a, a retardant. Uh, towards bacteria, make their meat last a little longer, um, and all. And uh, so it came to be a, a symbol of that which retards, um, you know, um, decay and things, sin, sin being a type of those things, okay, or those things being a type of sin. And so we as the church, Jesus said, are, are supposed to be the moral conscience of the world. We are supposed to be that which retards evil, which retards decay, which... Uh, by our very witness, our light, and so on, we, we, we restrict or we hinder the growth of evil. And so we the Holy Spirit uses us to restrain the evil going on around us. Now, I know, I know as you look at the news, thinking, I don't know how much we're restraining evil. I mean, it looks like it's going pretty good. Yeah, it does. But when the Holy Spirit removes the church from the earth in the rapture, 
You think it's bad now? You, you, the world has not seen evil like it's going to happen after the church is gone, okay? And uh, it, it, it'll be so bad it's hard to even get your mind around it. But um, we understand that um, some very, very bad days are coming. Now, we, I know it's gotten bad, and, uh, and Jesus said that the closer we get to his return, the more evil would ramp up. Uh, the more false teachers would and false prophets and all would come on the scene. We, we understand this. this is all uh, being, uh, being ramped up for the ultimate where God's going to you know, begin to really pour his judgments out and then Jesus will return to establish his kingdom. But um, once the church is gone in the rapture, the earth will begin to decay morally, spiritually, and even physically at a rapid rate. Physically, as the bodies build uh, pile up of those who have... Uh, uh, who have uh, been judged and died, or uh, just people turning on each other. Uh, it's going to be a, a horrible time. But um, the last time we uh, were in Revelation, we were in chapter 8, and we finished chapter 8, but let, let's just turn back to the last verse of uh, Revelation 8, where John said, I, And I looked and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying, with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, as we pointed out last time, guys, the three woes in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13 refer to the three judgments yet to come when the remaining three angels blow their trumpets. Each trumpet unleashes judgments. In the Old Testament, wherever the word woe is used, it is most often used in connection with very severe judgment. We've talked about that, okay? It is as, it is as though the messenger cried with a loud voice to the world, uh, if, you think, if you think this has been terrible so far, just wait. The worst is yet to come. Now, the phrase inhabitants of the earth, I believe, is another way of saying uh, them that dwell on the earth or the earth dwellers. We talked about the phrase those that dwell on the earth and then the phrase earth dwellers. We said that, that those two phrases appear 11 times in the book of Revelation. If you add inhabitants, you know, what are the inhabitants of the earth, uh, speaking to the same group of people, that's 12 times now in Revelation that this group of people is mentioned. And as we have said numerous times, the idea being expressed is more than just a reference to people who live on the earth. That's not a big, we all live on the earth, all right? No, this is a reference to a particular kind of people that will be living upon the earth during this period of time. Again, this is a special designation or category of people who only live for the earth and the things of the earth. That's why they're called earth dwellers. No, it's not just because they live on the earth. All of us live on the earth, God's people and unbelievers. This is a designation of a group of people, as we have said in the past, who are militant atheists. A lot of people are going to get saved during the tribulation period. A lot of people. And, uh, and, and some of them are going, to, are going to start off as atheists, but they're not hardcore atheists. And over the course of time, their hearts are going to soften as they see the judgments and, of course, you have the two witnesses preaching the gospel in the first part of the tribulation period. 
then the 144,000 Jewish Paul the Apostles take over and, and they're sharing the God. And over the course of time, a lot of people's hearts are going to soften. They're going to receive Christ. But you have this, this one group. I don't know how big it's going to be. I would imagine it's going to be pretty large. That are called the earth dwellers or those who dwell on the earth or the inhabitants of the earth right here in the verse uh, 13 of chapter 8. These are people that are militant atheists. These are folks that uh, that want nothing to do with the God of the Bible. Their hearts are so hard that uh, nothing will ever penetrate. And I would imagine that most of the judgment that God is pouring out, the, the, the more the horrific ones, we're going to see how it escalates, as we said, these judgments. But um, as more and more people come to Christ and the rest are hardened, have hardened their hearts so much they'll never get saved, uh, God begins to ramp up his uh, judgments, okay? And uh, we talked about that last time uh, pretty much. But these folks, again, are the opposite of the people who have their citizenship in heaven. That's us, born-again uh, believers in Jesus. Philippians 3, verses 18 to 21. You can check that out. Um, interesting that I think it was Philippians 3.20, I think it is the scripture where it says, our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, the word citizenship is the a Greek where we get the word politics from. So we are m members of two kingdoms, but our first loyalty and allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Yes, we thank God for the kingdom of America, our nation, um, for many years, honoring God, being blessed by God. That has, seems like it's coming to an end. We pray for revival and a great awakening. Um, but, you know, as America begins to crumble, our loyalties are to God and to his kingdom, first and foremost, okay? Now, John described this worldly group, and I just want to talk about them for just another minute, and we'll move on. But uh, John described this worldly group, this the earth dwellers, right? Um, he, he described them well in his first epistle, uh, warning God's people not to emulate them when he said, I'll just read it to you, 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, John said, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, lust of the eyes, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And who is the God of this world? The devil, right? Who has orchestrated the world in such a way that Everything appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's what John is telling us not to fall into that trap. Verse 17, and this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Amen. Now, once again, this group uh, that are the earth dwellers, later on in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, John makes clear they're not born again. He talks about their names having not been written in the, in the book of life, so they are not uh, born again, as we just said. And uh, so just we understand this, that these are just those that are militantly opposed to God and reflect that in the way they live and so on. Uh, as we talked about last week, this fourth trumpet judgment could be helpful in pinpointing where we are along the timeline of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, I'm not going to go into this in detail. We talked about it quite a bit last week. But let me just refresh your memory a little bit, okay? This fourth judgment, verse uh, 12, 
of Revelation 8. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Now, this sounds like it corresponds to something that the prophet Joel said many, many years prior to this. In Joel chapter 2, verse 31, I encourage you to read Joel. It's not a very big book, uh, and especially chapter 2 has a lot of prophecies about what we're studying in Revelation. But in Joel 2, verse 31, we read, Joel prophesying, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, again, guys, if the fourth judgment corresponds to what to, with what Joel prophesied, it means that we are about now to enter in our studies. We are about to enter the great tribulation portion of the final seven years. And once again, just quickly, remember how Jesus divided this seven-year period. You can read about this in Matthew 24, verses, verses uh, 4 through uh, verse 14. And uh, he, he gives a quick overview of the entire seven years. And then starting with verse 15, he zeroes in on the midpoint and then what will happen from that point through the rest of the seven years. But the Lord Jesus broke this seven-year period down. He likened it to a woman in labor. He broke it down this way. Basically, the first half he called uh, a woman, uh, likened to a woman in labor, and the second half he likened to a woman in hard labor right before she gives birth to, a, to the child, right? Uh, last week we said it might be more uh, to the point to say, well, the first four years uh, constitute a woman in labor metaphor, and the last three years hard labor. Because when the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, that's exactly at the midpoint of the last seven years. 1,260 days later, Jesus comes back. I think it's Revelation 11, 6 talks about that, right? But again, God in his mercy, once the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies and demands to be worshipped as God, instituting a new religion where he's God, all of a sudden now people are lining up, uh, wanting to be involved with this new religion. Others, I think, are horrified. For some people back then, they, he, he crossed the line. I mean, you know, where they felt he was the Messiah-like figure, now God. And so God gives a little time for people to decide what camp they want to be in. Do they want to worship the Antichrist or do they want to come over and worship the true and living God and his son, Jesus Christ? So I'm thinking maybe and after the, that might take six months after the midpoint which means you got three years left. And I think that's when things begin to kick into what um, Joel and other passages call the great and terrible uh, day of the Lord judgments. Again, first three and a half, four years, judgments, like a woman in labor when she start, first goes into labor. But then, of course, as you progress past the midpoint, then the judgments become more intense closer together and uh, right before the lord jesus returns you're going to see well we won't be here but you'll see a world that is just reeling from one cataclysmic judgment after another and then finally jesus appears establishes his kingdom and there's peace like a woman who has just given birth travail is over 
the pain is gone now just the joy of bringing a new life into the world well the joy of jesus bringing a new kingdom into the world is the idea right but um as we said last week that uh the fact that the final three blasts of the trumpet judgments are called woe judgments means that there is now going to be an escalation in the judgments that are about to take place all right let's look at verse one of chapter nine is all of that was a little bit of review from last time in chapter nine verse one john said then the fifth angel sounded and i saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth to him was given the key to the bottomless pit when john says a star fallen from heaven to the earth this is not another meteor or asteroid as we saw last week i do believe this mountain burning like fire that crashes into the one of the oceans uh is a giant meteor that comes into the atmosphere and and uh starts burning up and things we we looked at that um i don't think this is another one of those not, not another meteor or an asteroid falling to the earth because guys listen personality is ascribed to this star quote unquote by use of the personal pronoun him to him was given the key to the bottomless pit one author one pastor said and i quote in this in the context this star is best seen as an angel whether he is a good or bad angel depends on his relation uh, to the angel of the bottomless pit in revelation 9 verse 11 uh, if it's the same angel as the angel of revelation 9 11 it is an evil angel perhaps satan himself if it is a different angel, it may be a good angel sent by God to open up this bottomless pit for the purpose of judgment, end quote. Guys, we know that angels are referred to as stars in the Bible. We know that in the book of Job, chapter 38, verse 7, it says that when God laid the foundations of the earth, the sons of God, called morning stars, uh, sang together and praised God. So the angels were there when God laid the foundation of the earth and uh, they're called stars because they're luminaries. They're, 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 God's angels are, you know, they, they're light bearers. They give off light. And in that regard, the word star in the Greek just simply means uh, luminary, okay? And so, but they are called stars, right? And, um, uh, and so um, it's interesting though that uh, even though angels are referred to as stars in the Bible, and we think of God's good angels, um, this one falls from heaven to the earth. And the Greek word in verse 1 is actually, has fallen. In other words, John is saying, I saw a star, an angel, that had fallen to the earth. And guys, I believe, and I could be wrong, not everybody agrees with this, I believe that this is none other than Satan himself. Why do I believe that? Well, remember what the Lord Jesus said in Luke 10, uh, verse 18. He said to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Sometime before Genesis chapter 3, Lucifer had sinned in heaven by leading a revolt against God himself. Now, of course, that revolt went nowhere because nobody could overthrow God, right? But the devil was convinced he could do it. And uh, so he organized a rebellion in heaven. Revelation chapter 12 tells us 
that he was able to persuade a third of the stars of heaven, so a third of the angels. And guys, we don't know how many angels there are. I mean, at one point in Revelation 5, as John has been just enthralled with the vision of the throne of God the Father, at one point he starts looking around. He's been focused on God the Father so intently, he hasn't really seen what's going on around. And he, At one point he starts looking around, and he's like, he says, he, he says that the angels were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Well, 10,000 is the highest number in Greek and could often be used to, to denote an innumerable number. We don't, there could be, and I think there probably is, billions of angels, maybe more. Maybe billions upon billions of angels. And Satan was able to persuade a third of them to follow him, a formidable army to say the least. You know, we are in a war. We, we know that. Scripture tells us that. Sometimes we don't always live as though we're in a war, right? I mean, what soldier on a battlefield gets up in the morning and walks out into the battlefield with his skivvies, a t-shirt, and flip-flops? No helmet, no weaponry, no body armor. I don't think that soldier's going to last too long. Yet we Christians start our day very much the same way in a spiritual sense, right? Forgetting that we are at war, again, he, uh, Ephesians 6, we are at war with a super-intelligent, hyper-malevolent spirit being known as the devil, it's Satan, and he is not playing games. He commands a vast army of demonic uh, forces, and he is dead serious about taking us out. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing, I mean, the closer we get to the Lord's return, the more the spiritual warfare is ramping up. And... Uh, if you don't know that and you don't prepare for it every day and stay in the Word and draw close to God and so on, um, a lot of Christians have left the battle. They can't take it. Uh, I didn't sign up for this. What would you sign up for? Well, health and wealth and happiness and, pro you know, well, you signed up for the wrong team, okay? Uh, the Bible doesn't talk about that, all right? We are soldiers in a war. And we don't entangle ourselves with the cares of this life because then it takes us out of the battle, our, 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 at least in our mind. And that's where a lot of the battle is fought for control of our mind. Uh, you, can have the, you can give a soldier the best body armor and weaponry that money can buy if they don't have the mind of a soldier. If they don't have a heart to fight, they're going to go AWOL the first chance they get. So a lot of Christians, God has given them the best armor, Ephesians 6, that... The, in the universe, the best weaponry, right? The word of God in prayer. But if a Christian doesn't have the mind of a soldier, it's all useless. It's all useless. So we have to be engaged is the idea, right? But um, sometime before Genesis 3, Satan led this rebellion in heaven, and he was put down, and he fell. Turn to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are two of the classic passages that talk about Lucifer. Lucifer. Isaiah 14, verse 12, where it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. Son Lucifer, by the, way, by the way, means light bearer. The name Lucifer 
means light bearer. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light for what purpose? To deceive. To deceive. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, the five I wills of Lucifer. Verse 15, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Turn over to Ezekiel 28 quickly. The two classic passages on Lucifer and what happened before he fell, leading up to his fall. Ezekiel 28, verses 14 and 15. God said, you were the anointed cherub who covers. A cherub is the highest form of an angel. Um, and this angel, Lucifer, was the anointed cherub that covered. In other words, he was the one appointed by God to oversee and to be an authority over all the other angels. Okay, so he was the top guy under the Trinity. He didn't want to be number two. He wanted to be number one. He didn't want to be under God, even though he was the top lieutenant. He wanted to be God, right? So you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. I have no idea what that means. We'll find out someday. Uh, you know, it's heaven talk, I guess, you know, so... Uh, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And that's when he led this revolt. I don't want to be number two. I want to be God. And so he led a revolt against God. It was put down. And uh, at that point, Satan fell. What does that mean? He fell from his exalted position as number two in heaven, as the worship leader of heaven and all. Uh, he, he was he fell to the earth in the sense earth became his domain. He's the God of this world right now. But that doesn't mean he doesn't still have access to heaven. He does. And we, we learn that from the book of Job. That even though Satan is now God of this world, and he's influencing quite a bit uh, what goes on in this world, uh, in Job chapters 1 and 2, we read how that he still has access to heaven. I'll just read to you from Job chapter 1, starting with verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present. Sons of God, Bar Elohim, is a, a title for angels. A title for angels. Sons of God. It's, it's always a reference to angels. There's, there's only one person, one human being that was called a son of God. Now we're, we're sons and daughters by adoption. Okay, but I'm talking about uh, the angels of God are called sons of God. There's no female angels. I'm sorry, Hallmark. I know you meant well, but there's no female angels, okay? They're called the sons of God, all right? They're called the sons of God because they were the direct creation of God, okay? The only human being that was called the son of God, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, is Adam. Why was that? Because Adam was a direct creation of God. Adam was not born from another, uh, you know, earthly mother or father. No, he was a direct creation of God, right? So, uh, just so you understand that, but, but the, the term sons of God is a term that speaks of angels. And so, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Satan has to present himself to God. You know, you have unbelievers that, uh, that think that, 
uh, that the devil and God are equally matched. Okay? And they're in this epic cosmic battle for supremacy. And that the devil is, you know, God's equal when they fight. No, that's, the devil is a created being. God is the creator. Uh, well, then why does God allow the devil to continue? Because the devil gives us an option. Uh, you can't have free will without having a choice, okay? So in that regard, God allows the devil to continue, uh, although it's not going to be up forever, okay, as we're going to see eventually. But, uh, you know, that, that God allows the devil to continue because he is giving man a choice. You can't have free elections and only one candidate on the ballot, okay? And so it wouldn't be true free choice if we couldn't exercise it to choose somebody else to follow, uh, like the devil, right? But um, Satan has to present himself to God. He just can't do whatever he wants, right? And we see it here in Job 1. So, you know, one day the angels came to present themselves to God. Here's Satan coming along to present himself. And the Lord said to Satan, from where, have, from where do you come? As if God didn't know. So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Let me just say this to you guys. God is omnipresent. God's presence fills the universe, right? He's everywhere. The devil is not omnipresent. He can be only be in one place at a time. But guess what? He gets around a lot. Okay? I mean, he zips around like lightning. Okay? He's everywhere. And not to mention... He's got a very sophisticated network of demons plastered throughout everywhere in the world, everywhere on earth, right? And they communicate supernaturally somehow. We get cell phones. We can talk to people all over the, all over the planet if we want, right? You think Satan's got something better? Sure he does. And I think they communicate through thought. And, and so wherever his demons are posted, they constantly relaying information uh, back to Satan that he keeps formulating his plans and 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 so on right uh he's a general and he, he and he wants to bring down god by bringing down god's church and that's his attacks on us that's where they come in okay but he's not omnipresent but he does get around quite a bit and um but my original point was that the devil still has access to heaven but around the midpoint of the tribulation period he is cast out of heaven once and for all. Turn to Revelation 12. And we'll look at this in more detail when we get there. I just wanted to kind of uh, give you a little broad look at some of this stuff right now. But in Revelation chapter 12. Now this is talking about right at the midpoint of the tribulation period. Verse 7. And a war broke out in heaven. <laughs> That's got to be spectacular, okay? That's got to be spectacular. You think Star Wars is crazy, you know? I don't know if they got lightsabers up there, but boy, sparks are going to fly. It's an incredible thing. A war broke out in heaven. Michael, the archangel, and his angels fought with the dragon, the devil, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer so the great dragon was cast out that serpent of old called the devil and satan who deceives the whole world he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him verse 12 woe to the inhabitants of the earth 
and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. The devil knows he's going down. By the time he's kicked out of heaven for good, he knows he's got roughly three and a half years left. He knows he's going down, although it's kind of interesting. People have asked me, and I really don't know what to say. Do you think that the devil really thinks he can win against God? You know, I know he's a really hyper-intelligent person, a being. Um, you'd think he would know that, right? I, I don't, but, you know, he fights like, like he, he can win still. I, I don't know, you know. Uh, maybe he's that deceived. Maybe he's so deceived by him, his own greatness and his own mind, he actually thinks he can take on God and win. Well, of course he can't, okay? He can't, but he knows he's got a short time. He knows he's going into the, as we're going to talk about, into uh, the bottomless pit for a thousand years. We know that. Uh, but he wants to take as many people with him as possible. And, uh, you know, that will be a forever thing for people that, you know, die in their sins, right? Uh, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth. The devil and his fallen angels have come down to the earth. Now, they have access to the earth right now. Again, uh, Satan was zipping around the earth, uh, you know, uh, when he went before the Lord in the book of Job. But now they're banished to the earth. They can't leave the earth. They can't come and go back and forth from heaven to earth. And so now God is penning them in. He's, he's restricting their movement and limiting them to be on this earth because now the showdown is coming. The showdown is coming, and God's gathering all the people, all the beings, uh, for this final war, this battle of Armageddon. All right? All right, so the fifth angel now sounds the trumpet. Verse 1, once again, then the fifth angel sounded. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Guys, the term bottomless pit is abuso in the Greek, a word that literally means without depth. Without depth, bottomless pit. The only place, guys, in all the earth where there could be a bottomless pit. Are you ready? is the center of the earth. Because in the center of the earth, every direction is up. So there's no bottom. All right? From verse 2, we learn that there is a shaft leading from the surface of the earth down to the abuso, down to the center of the earth. Where it is, we don't know. Thank God we don't know. God knows. Uh, it's probably somewhere in some remote area that people very seldom go. But if they do go, it's, it's camouflaged. But God knows where it is, okay? At one point, he's going to open it, right? Um, but the abuso, or the abyss it's sometimes called, is going to be where the demons and Satan... Now, there's some discrepancy about demons and fallen angels. Some believe they're separate entities. Others believe, no, it's just... They're synonyms of each other. They, fallen angels, demons, same thing. I don't know. Uh, I know one thing. Uh, fallen angels don't seem to, uh, to desire to inhabit a body of some kind. Uh, demons do. They're always looking to inhabit primarily people. Uh, but as we're going to see, they even will inhabit animals. Okay, So I don't know. I think right now, I think that I would tend to categorize them as two different groups. 
Well, then we know who the fallen angels are. Who are the demons? <laughs> well, uh, okay. Uh, total speculation. Some people believe. I, I don't know where I stand on this. I'm, I'm not ready to subscribe to this view entirely. It has some merit. But many people believe that demons were actually uh, the, uh, the people that lived during the time of Noah's flood, uh, and they died. Uh, I'm thinking primarily of a group of people that were living at that time known as the Nephilim, that they died and became demons, which are different from fallen angels. They say, what are you talking about? Um, well, I'm glad you asked me, because I... <laughs> Um, first of all, let me just finish my thought. Uh, the abusa or abyss is going to be where the demons and Satan, fallen angels too, will be bound for the entire thousand-year millennial kingdom. Turn over to Revelation 20 for a minute. Let's look at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, this is a good angel, okay. Having the key to the bottomless pit, the abuso, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That would be the duration of the millennial kingdom, all right? And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he, could, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. We'll talk about that more as we progress in the study. He is going to be released out of this bottomless pit after a thousand years. And we'll talk about what he's going to do when he gets out. But this bottomless pit, guys, this abuso, uh, is going to be where, where the demons and fallen angels, if they're different beings, and Satan will be bound someday, uh, a place that... All of these fallen creatures are terrified of. They're terrified of. Um, turn to Luke 8. Let me set the scene. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were in the area of Gadara. That's uh, on the shores of the, of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, And there was a, a, a tomb, a graveyard. And from, from Luke, it sounds like there was only one guy, but there's actually two. The other gospel says there was another guy. But, but the reason that Luke only talks about one is because this is the dominant of the two. This guy was so uh, possessed by demons. Uh, some believe it could have been as many as 2,000. I'll tell you why in a second. Okay, two, Can you imagine being possessed by 2,000 demons? Okay. And he was so fierce, he couldn't live in a house. He had to live out in the tombs. And, um, of course, when you have, you're possessed by demons, or even a demon, you have supernatural strength. Years ago, we, I was at a pastor's conference up in the uh, uh, mountains in California. Uh, Twin, Twin Peaks was the, was the area, and we had a, a conference center up there. And so it was uh, Saturday night, and we had just come from dinner. We had just started the evening worship service, and then Pastor Chuck was going to give a teaching. 
And so as we're singing songs to the Lord, I happened to open my eyes, and I saw a pastor come walking up to Chuck, who was sitting on the steps waiting to get up to the pulpit, and said something to Chuck. Then I saw Chuck get up and leave. That's really all I heard uh, for the rest of the worship. As soon as worship was over, they, uh, somebody got up there and said, Pastors, we need to pray. Down the street, uh, some of our pastors at this moment are dealing with a case of demonic possession. What happened was there was a, um, a fire station uh, up there, and this little gal comes walking into the station. Now, from what I was told, she was really just a little gal, thin, you know, as somebody said, she'd have to kind of jump around in the shower to get wet. She's just that, that skinny, okay? Little, maybe 95 pounds. This is a little gal, okay? She comes walking into this fire department, and I don't know what she started to say, but uh, one of the firemen was, a, was a, a Christian and knew immediately what was going on. So he had some of the guys lead her over to the church, Calvary Chapel, right next door to the firehouse. and So they could pray over her, right? When she walks in, she takes one of the pews, which were bolted into the concrete, and rips it right out of the floor. And it took, I don't know how many paths, they were going over in carloads to pray over this gal. After a couple hours of praying, we got the word she had been delivered, and, and, and she had received Christ. But demons are incredibly powerful beings, okay? And... Um, so this guy was living in this tomb, and, and they, the men of the town tried to chain him, to restrain him. He just broke the, the chains. Nobody could, could you know, get this guy, could restrain him. And so Jesus you know, goes there, and he sees Jesus, and he comes running at his feet, to his feet and falls down. And um, Jesus asked him in verse 30, What is your name? And he said, Legion because many demons had entered into him. Now, a Roman legion was 6,000 men. So I don't know if he had 6,000 demons, uh, you know. And, and, and he, uh, he begged Jesus that Jesus would not command them to go into the abyss. So the, the demons are talking to Jesus, you know, and, and, and they're basically pleading with him, please don't send us into the abyss, the abusa. They're terrified of this place, right? And, and, and so they said, Let's, let us go uh, inhabit the herd of swine. There was 2,000. What, what pigs were doing in, in Jew, Jewish country, I don't have any idea, okay? Uh, so the place wasn't exactly walking with the Lord uh, is the idea, but there was 2,000 pigs there. And so Jesus said, go ahead. And all the demons came and inhabited those pigs, and they all ran down. And there's only one place around the Sea of Galilee, where there's a steep uh, embankment where this could happen. So we know, basically, where Gadara was. And, and they ran down this steep slope into the Sea of Galilee and were all drowned, okay? Um, but, but these demons and all are terrified of this place known as the Abuso. And this is going to be the fate of every fallen angel and demon and even Satan himself someday, to be chained in the abuso for a thousand years and then cast into hell forever, okay? However, and this is where I wanted to go, and hopefully we have enough time to finish developing this. Um, however, even though that's going to be the fate of all demons and fallen angels someday to be in this abuso for a thousand years, um, there is a group of fallen angels that are so wicked and so exceedingly 
terrible, fierce, that they are chained in the Abusa right now. They are chained in the Abusa right now. Uh, turn to Second Peter 2. Second Peter 2, verse 4. Where Peter said, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell. That's a bad translation. The Greek word is Tartarus. It's the only place in the New Testament where that Greek word appears. In classical Greek, it was used of the lowest compartment of Sheol or Hades. Sheol and Hades are the same place. Sheol is the Hebrew, Hades is the Greek. It means the grave, the grave, okay? So in classic, uh, classical Greek, Tartarus was the lowest compartment of Hades. And uh, so God did not, if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Let me stop there. If you compare that with Isaiah 14, verse 15, which we just read a moment ago, it says that, talking about Satan, but this is going to be the, uh, the, uh, the end for all fallen angels and demons. Uh, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, listen, to the lowest depths of the pit. So that sounds like what Peter has in mind. Uh, this place called Hades, in the center of the earth, a place of incarceration, where, yes, uh, the souls of unbelievers who rejected Christ are right now, and will stay until the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom, where they are then resurrected and judged and sent to hell, the lake of fire. Um, but this this place called Hades seems to have a, lo a lower compartment in it to it. We would maybe liken it to the maximum, uh, you know, in a maximum security prison, the, 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 the most inner, uh, strongest uh, place where the most violent criminals are incarcerated. God has got a place like that for, for some angels, okay? Um, but what is Peter referring to? Uh, who are these angels? Well, let's quickly, because we got to do this quickly, turn over to Jude. Now, there's only one chapter, so let's look at verses 6 and 7. Who are these angels that God has incarcerated in this lowest part of Hades, Tartarus? Jude, verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain. Now, for an angel, what is an angel's proper domain? Heaven heaven all right that's where angels live in heaven right the angels that did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode their own home he has reserved in everlasting chains under under darkness for the judgment of the great day as sodom and gomorrah and the cities round them in similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. What's he talking about? There are a group of angels who did not keep their proper domain. They did not stay in heaven where they belonged, but came down to the earth and went after strange flesh. What is strange flesh for an angel? Human flesh. Okay? Human flesh. What does all that mean? Turn to Genesis 6. This group of angels who went after human flesh 
God has reserved in these chains of judgment, darkness for the judgment of the great day. Well, Jude is picking up on something that appears in Genesis chapter 6. And let's just pick it up in verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for, the, for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, you have a lot of people, a lot of pastors and commentators who believe what's going on here is sons of God is a reference to the godly line of Seth and then the, uh, the daughters of, of men uh, reference to the ungodly line of Cain. And what you have is believers, sons of Seth, marrying unbelievers, daughters of Cain. And you have this mixed union, which were forbidden from it, being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. So you have believers marrying unbelievers. Well, first of all, there's a lot of problems with that. Okay, so you got the sons of Seth. What about the daughters of Seth? You got, you got the daughters of men. What about the sons of men? Uh, you can't reverse that and have these people marrying, right? Uh, two unbelievers and believers it doesn't begin to answer the problem because verse 4 really magnifies it there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown the word giants there is the Hebrew word nephilim nephilim I'm going to tell you what I believe is going on. And if this was the only place in the Bible, Genesis 6, that taught this, it wouldn't be clear enough for me to buy into this interpretation. But this incident is repeated three times in the New Testament. Uh, twice by Peter, once in his first epistle, once in his second epistle, and then Jude. You have three places in the New Testament that corroborate what's going on here. And I believe what's going on is in the Garden of Eden, when the devil tempted Eve and she ate the forbidden fruit and she fell, gave to Adam and he did eat and he fell, right? Remember how God pronounced the curse that now, you know, the earth would not bring forth food naturally all by itself in the sweat of your brow, Adam. You're going to have to work the land to feed yourself and your family. Eve, you're going to now, uh, in childbirth, you're going to have great sorrow and pain, right? Then he turned to the devil and said, who took the form of a serpent, and he said um, that uh, there was, I'm going to paraphrase, there's coming a redeemer. I'm going to send a redeemer someday. You're going to try to crush him, uh, step on him, but he's going to crush your head, your authority, right? Of course, what God was promising is that someday Jesus was going to come, do battle against the enemy, die on Calvary's cross, redeem everything back from the devil, crush the devil's authorities, the God of this world will know more after Jesus comes, right? So the devil's, they're listening to this, and so he's thinking to himself, and I, I'm, I'm just reading between the lines, not happening to me, nobody's going to come and crush my head. So what the devil decided to do was launch a preemptive strike against God and his program. He initially thought this Redeemer was going to be Abel, okay? That's why he moved in the heart of Cain to kill Abel. He's trying to get rid of the Messianic line, or actually he thought Abel was the Messiah who was going to crush his head. It wasn't, of course. So after Cain killed his brother Abel, eventually Adam and Eve had Seth. Seth became the father of the Messianic line, and later on it, it 
developed and God let us know he, he uh, focused you know on a certain tribe then a certain family you know when Abraham and you know then in Isaac and then Jacob and then Judah and as it got tighter and tighter Satan was able to focus his attack more and more because he he knew now from what tribe and what family Messiah was going to be born through right but this preemptive strike so what did he do he sent down some of his angels who took the form of a human of human beings angels can do that the bible says you know treat strangers kindly you don't know when you're entertaining angels unawares okay wow uh you know so angels can take human form now there's a lot of folks that believe that angels cannot cohabitate well i don't know that i don't know what angels are capable of doing okay apparently they are able because they took wives of human they took human women as wives and they went into them and these women bore these giants these nephilim the hebrews fallen ones um, these are half human half demon hybrids and messiah would never be able to be born from a uh, a a lineage that was corrupted by demon seed and that was the plan and it seems as though God protected one family. It, we, we go on to read, well, these, you know, and, and, and they gave birth to these, these giants, these men of renown, men of old. Goliath was one of these renowned. Uh, Goliath, apparently, was one of these half-human, half-demon hybrids. We know that he had five brothers. And it's interesting, they were all very large individuals, right? Goliath was almost 10 foot tall. But it, it, there's an interesting thing, I think, in, uh, I forgot it was first or second Samuel, which talked about how Goliath and his brothers had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. These were not normal people, is my point, okay? Not normal people. So the devil tried to preemptively thwart the plan of God by bringing a Messiah. Now I'm going to contaminate the whole human race. He won't be able to be born, right? And so, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So uh, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. The phrase perfect in his generations could be translated uncontaminated in his genealogies. It could be that Noah and his family were the only ones left on the earth that had not been contaminated with demon seed we read in chapter 6 all flesh had corrupted itself upon the earth all flesh so humans animals right i mean the devil went after all these living things right but especially to keep messiah from being born it could be that noah and his family noah was a just man how, how are we just by our lifestyle no by our faith Noah, of course, was a believer. And as a believer, God protected him and his family. They stayed pure. And um, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3.
give you a couple more scriptures and we'll close. Pick it up next week. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. I, I've, I've taken these scriptures together because they all are talking about what we're dealing with here, okay? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There's a lot of folks that read that and think what Peter is saying is that all the people that were disobedient in the days of Noah, right, that died in the flood, that when Jesus came, he died in the cross, he went into Hades, and he preached to these folks, gave them a second chance, right? A lot of folks believe that. There's a lot of problems with that, not the least of which is it's appointed for a man to die once and then what? He gets a second chance, then comes the judgment, right? Also, it says here, when the Lord Jesus preached to the spirits in prison, that Greek word for preached, is not the word we get our word evangelized from, euangelizomai. It's not the word for the gospel. It's a Greek word, keruso. And it simply means to proclaim, to proclaim. To the spirits in prison, that Greek word for spirits is not ever used of human beings. Not the souls of, of men that died in the flood. No, no. The spirits, that's a term for angels. Well, what I believe is going on is when Jesus died on the cross, before he uh, uh, resurrected, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Part of what he did was to let the captives free, Moses, Abraham, David, uh, Jeremiah, all the saints of the Old Testament that died believing in God and his coming Messiah. They couldn't go to heaven when they died. Their sins had been, had been paid for. So after Jesus paid for their sins, he went into the lower parts of the earth, opened the, the doors of the, Abraham's bosom. That's where they were. It's a paradise. Uh, remember how Jesus said that Hades is divided into two main compartments separated by a gulf like the Grand Canyon? On one side you have Abraham's bosom, a place of paradise and, and, uh, and comfort. On the other side, way across the gulf, there is a place of torment for unbelievers, right? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, all the sins of the Old Testament saints were paid for. He goes down into Hades. He unlocks the doors because it was a paradise, but it was still a prison. They couldn't leave Abraham's bosom. And now he released all of these uh, Old Testament saints. And when he ascended back to his father, they all went with him. Today, Paul the Apostle says, if you're a Christian and you die today, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. You know, Abraham's bosom is still there. It's empty. People don't go to Abraham's bosom when they die now because Christ has paid for their sins. The other side, though, the place of torment, remember where the rich man went? Uh, rich man and Lazarus, Jesus told that story, not a parable, a story. In parables, nobody's ever named. A certain man or a certain king went here and did that. A rich man and then Lazarus. This was a real story. These are real people. And Lazarus was a believer, went to the side of Abraham's bosom. And then, of course, the rich man went to the place of torment. That place is still active today and will be until after the thousand-year millennial kingdom when the Lord Jesus will resurrect all these People, they will stand before him, give an account. They're all going to hell, but their degree of punishment in hell will be determined at that time. 
how much they evil they did in the earth and how much truth they had but rejected and so on. Okay. Um, but Jesus announced his victory to these angels who at one point, now these are the ones I believe were so wicked and so terrible they tried to come down to the, well they did come down to the earth, they tried to contaminate the human race, they failed, God took them and chained them in this very maximum security part of Hades, right? Uh, but Jesus, before that happened, he declared his victory. He declared his victory, right? Uh, he preached or declared to these angels that were in prison. Verse 20, who formerly were disobedient. Well, once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water, were saved through the waters of judgment, is the idea known as family. And again, coming back to 2 Peter 2, verse 4, where Peter said, If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell to Tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And Jude says, For the judgment of the great day. Now here's the thing, and we'll end with this, all right? The judgment that Peter and Jude are referring to might be the judgment of these angels themselves. They committed a pretty wicked sin in trying to contaminate the human race, thwarting the plan of God, right? So they were apprehended by God and chained in this place called Tartarus. And it could be what Peter and Jude are talking about is they were chained there until these angels themselves are going to be judged. But he might have in mind, both of them might have in mind, these angels were chained in Tartarus until the judgment of the great day. And that could be a reference to what we're talking about right now in Revelation 9. That God at one point during the tribulation period is going to open the prison door and let these angels loose on the earth. They're so fierce that in one hour they kill a billion people. So that could very well be the interpretation as well. Maybe both. I don't know. But we'll pick it up again <laughs> Uh, I think we're still in verse 1, aren't we? So we'll... Uh, <laughs> if you're new with us, get used to this. All right? Uh, okay, guys. So uh, we will pick it up, God willing, next week and uh, continue on in chapter 9. Father, we thank you for your great love. We're with you, loved us, Lord, that you have redeemed us, that you have uh, opened our eyes, called us to be your children, uh, Lord, and we have received our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are your, your, your redeemed children. And we thank you, Lord, that what, what awaits us is glory inexpressible, uh, an inheritance that will never wear out in heaven, a place of absolute paradise for eternity as we celebrate every day uh, with you as our King. We thank you, Lord. But, Father, there is work left to do before this world completely is judged. We pray for our loved ones that don't know you, that, Lord, we don't want them to enter into this horrific period of time known as the tribulation period. Lord, please open their eyes and save them uh, before the rapture that we can all go together. And uh, But, Lord, we just pray you give us grace to be lights in the darkness, not taken in by the enticements of the world, but to keep our eyes firmly fixed on you, Lord, on the finish line, um, as Paul said, uh, uh, you know, looking up um, and not uh, looking at things of the earth, but keeping our eyes on things above. 
And so we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.